Happy Friday the 13th, everyone. Thanks for using it to tune into my show, because I'm sure we've all got better things to do, right? I jest. Welcome to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, the small pot boiler that seats ever more rotten ingredients from the horrorscape to cook and fashion into tasty dishes to serve to you. Not quite culinary, but still delicious. The objective of this whole setup is to look through exploitation and cult horror films of the 1960s to the 1980s, to scour for material worthy of getting a mention simply for sharing the market with the video nasties. These, of course, were a group of films highlighted by the UK government back in the 80s which were blamed for crimes and the ever-worsening state of society. So, they were put on trial found to be obscene in various degrees, and banished from the video shells for a long time. That's where I come in, Andy Roberts, who's been collecting those named and shamed examples since I was 16 years old, a whole 11 years ago. I've remained largely unimpressed with the general quality of obscenity within the nasties, so I'm looking for other examples that were on par, or in some cases, worse than the nasty material itself, just to highlight how utterly stupid the whole debacle was. Now, last week we covered life forms outside of our own Mother Gaia, or Master Terror, extraterrestrials from other worlds that come down to Earth to wreak havoc on our populace. Today, we're abandoning the rest of the universe, and we're only focusing on our own planet, covering two cult films about some horrendous terrestrial animals that, for various reasons, get to dine on our human population. They are 1979's Killer Fish, from Antonio Margariti, and 1984's Rats, Night of Terror, from Bruno Mattai. Now, both of these chaps were video nasty directors, so it does make sense to have another round of their films to look at. So let's get into our first example from Antonio Margariti, Killer Fish. You always put a price 
Causing a series of explosions at a power station, a small group of four thieves use the resultant confusion to zipline into a high-security vault, where they pilfer an extremely valuable cache of emeralds. As morning breaks, they throw their treasure into a lake for retrieving nearby, and destroy their van to put off any police pursuit, donning regular clothing instead of their wetsuits to appear as local fishermen. The plan's successful, and the entire group who planned it, consisting of Robert, Kate, Hans, Lloyd, Warren and Paul, agree to wait for the search to die down in 60 days to attempt retrieving the score. A small group of tourists arrive at the same hotel, consisting of photographer Ollie, model Gabrielle, rich lady Anne, Tom and Max. Lloyd and Warren, dissatisfied with waiting for so long, make their excuses and leave to retrieve the jewels themselves, only for Lloyd to dive in and become overrun with something under the water which kills him quickly. Warren confronts Robert about what's in the lake, but Robert is also unaware of what he's talking about. Kate begins to get suspicious when she discovers that Warren and Lloyd never turned up to their destination, and that Hans is soon missing. Sure enough, Warren has now joined forces with Hans, who goes to die for the jewels with a harpoon gun, to fight off whatever's under the water. Hans is attacked anyway, and in the confusion of dragging him out, Warren is shot with the harpoon gun, and also falls into the lake to become devoured. Kate returns to Paul to discover that he's tending a tank of piranha fish, whereupon he reveals that he released a shoal of them into the lake, to prevent anyone from betraying them and stealing the emeralds prematurely. Wanting to let Robert know, Kate encounters a naked Gabrielle in his room, only fueling the mistrust in the remaining group. While Ollie, Gabrielle, Anne and Max go out the next day to find a shooting location for their shoot with Robert in tow, Paul and Kate decide to take the initiative and die for the jewels themselves, with Paul using a distraction to keep the piranha away from Kate as she dives. As she nears the jewels, she gets distracted by the sight of Hans and Warren's corpses, picked clean by the fish. The school of piranha then suddenly arrive, and while she manages to grab the loot, she's forced to use her breathing apparatus to shoo the fish away before barely escaping with her life. They transfer the jewels from one container to another, before noticing that their boat has submerged just as a rainstorm hits. They come across Ollie's boat and hitch a ride with them, just as the storm becomes incredibly amplified into a full monsoon, and they are forced to go back near the island where the jewels were dumped. Due to the weather, the nearby dam bursts and causes the boat to violently toss back and forth, while Kate's concern for the lunchbox where the jewels are hidden attracts the attention of Robert, who is immediately suspicious. Suddenly, the boat crashes and runs aground just offshore, while the storm destroys a lot of the nearby island. As Robert and Paul fight in the flooded hold, they're suddenly distracted by screams. One of the crewmen falls into the lake and is devoured, causing Max to jump in after him, also becoming injured, revealing that the piranha are still in the lake and visibly irritating Robert. With the boat adrift, the guests try to leave the boat and make it to shore, starting with Anne and Ollie. With Ollie's weight bearing on one side, a piranha gets through the wood and bites his hand, causing him to flail and fall off, where the fish eat him rapidly. Anne also falls in, but manages to get to shore quite quickly, and runs away to get help, where she signals a search plane piloted by Tom. The plane tries to drop several rafts to assist them, but they end up being too far away when they land. Finding no other option but to land, the plane accidentally crashes onto the nearby island, but the crew safely depart the plane before it explodes. Finding no other option but to blast the piranha away with gas canisters, Robert dives to get one of the rafts and manages to get one without much injury. 
Paul, however, suddenly pulls a gun out on everyone, intent on leaving with Kate and the loot. Having her hold the rest hostage, Kate suddenly realises that Paul is leaving her too, and as he gloats, she tries to shoot him but finds the gun is empty, causing Robert to jump in the water after him. After fighting with each other, Robert is attacked by the piranha fish and gravely injured. But during the scuffle, however, the piranha bite through the raft and begin to eat Paul alive, with everyone looking on, powerless to stop it. Tom and Anne finally rescue Kate, Gabrielle and the others in a helicopter. At a hospital, Kate is visited by the police who return the box of emeralds to her, unaware of its actual content. Kate and Gabrielle make up before Kate heads back to the US through the airport with the bag, which she soon discovers on board has none of the emeralds in it. Gabrielle is revealed to have switched the bag for her one and delivers the jewels to Robert. Finding it a little lighter though than it should be, it's revealed that Kate has already foreseen this and already emptied it of half of them. Robert, smiling at her cunning, silently agrees that she deserves half of it and drives off. You did it. You put piranha in the dam. Yes, I did. Fifty pair, to be precise. The day I decided to go through with the robbery. There must be tens of thousands by now. That's very interesting. Do you know that you just murdered Hans and Warren? On the contrary. They betrayed us. They were punished. Punished? What is the matter with you? They, they didn't even know. They knew. They knew the consequences. A secret like that amounts to betrayal in my book. You should have told us. Well, yours is a woman's book, not a thief's. You didn't mention that to me when you sent me down in the mines. If I had said anything about the piranhas, they could have taken steps to neutralize them just as we'll do in 60 days. Well, what about me? You could have told me, seems to me. You're supposed to love me. But I do. I do. I do. My God, don't you think I'm horrified by what's happened? Where do you think those stones would be now if I hadn't taken steps to protect them? Where? I'm going to Lasky. No, you needn't. He's remained loyal. If he continues to do so, he risks nothing. No. Lasky was with me. We watched Hans and Warren die. He's bound to think of this place. Your little habit. I want you to explain everything to him the way you explained it to me. We have to stick together. If we fight each other, we'll all lose. Sometimes known as Piranhas 2 or Naked Sun... Killerfish is actually let down a little by its title, as it implies a whole host of things without actually seeing the film. A casual horror fan would assume that it's about a large school of deadly fish, which it kind of is, but not quite in the vein of the film Piranha that one would expect. Joe Dante's 1978 rip-off of Jaws featured a strain of deadly genetically engineered piranha fish that are accidentally released into a local river system, where they proceed to devour anyone swimming in the area. 
Killerfish is not really that sort of film. The Piranha plays second fiddle to the plot, which is actually more about a jewel heist gone awry when mistrust and greed get in the way. While it does sound like the film is therefore failing its bold title, it may very well do that, but the film itself is actually really rather good. Some of the film's alternative titles, like Treasure of the Piranha, would actually quell this problem though, so I'm not going to dwell on the title anymore. Let's get onto the film itself. The film is actually a rather skillfully executed story that includes horror, action, thriller and drama elements all at once. Rather than being shoehorned into one particular genre, Margariti has wrought an entertaining package that has a little bit of everything, and it's quite successful as a result in my book. We have the heist itself at the beginning, giving us our thrills as the group grab the loot by the skin of their teeth, and then evade pursuit. The large amount of floods and explosions in the film also get our action taste buds flowing, with skilled utilisation of miniature sets for this purpose. You've got your drama, you've got the whole relationship between Kate and Paul, as well as Kate's rivalry with Gabrielle. And then there's the horror, of course. Despite the attacks not actually being all that frequent and being a bit bloodless to begin with, the intensity and the violence of the attacks actually increases as the film goes on, with Ollie's death being a particular highlight of excess. In fact, excess is probably the best way to describe this film. It certainly doesn't do anything in half measures. I mean, it was filmed in Brazil, so you've got this perpetually gorgeous landscape and climate to enjoy. And combined with the aforementioned action sequences, which include a power plant exploding and erupting in flames, a boat being tossed around in a storm and a dam bursting, flooding and destroying everything nearby, can be described as almost anything except boring. The drama is over the top, the characters are near caricatured in their portrayals, especially when they're wearing their thief outfits. I mean, it couldn't really be cheesier. The plot is a little exaggerated and silly, but by heck, it's all a lot of fun. Despite the fun aspect of their performances, the characters are hard to get a grip on, really, and attach ourselves to too much, because they constantly betray each other in the name of securing the booty at the bottom of the lake. While this is actually impressive in certain moments, like Paul's betrayal of Kate, which actually seemed like the most stable relationship in the film, it is just throwaway at others, like the whole thing with Hans diving in to get the jewels, when it's clear from the very beginning that he wasn't happy, or even the two brothers, Warren and Lloyd, who were clearly not going to go to relax in Rio for 60 days. Kate seems to be the focus of our attention, and her cunning of anticipating that Robert would steal the jewels at the last hurdle was actually rather satisfying, considering how she was actually fooled by Paul. Paul himself is quite interesting, as almost every aspect of his character is emboldened by his idea of luck. I mean, he constantly plays backgammon, musing that the best way to attract Lady Luck is to act like you don't need her. This does seem to pay off with him for most of the film. I mean, he feigns a heart attack to get Kate on his side, and even resists sex with her to maintain this lie, leading to her successfully retrieving the emeralds for him. He gambles and puts the piranha in the lake to prevent anyone from getting the goods, potentially putting innocent people at risk too, but it thankfully pays off when Warren, Lloyd and Hans are killed due to their greed. He even picks up an NT pistol and holds everyone hostage with it, hoping that they don't call his bluff, and it's successful enough for him to get away with the gems. His luck does begin to run out, however, signalled by his loss in backgammon to Robert. Shortly afterwards, his ruse with both the gun and Kate's trust is uncovered, and due to the heroics of Robert, Paul's raft becomes deflated, making him die slowly by the very piranha that he released into the lake. Rather dramatic irony. His character name is interesting too, as it references the Joe Dante film. The main character in Piranha is also called Paul, and was portrayed by actor Bradford Dillman, which is very similar to James Franciscus's character, Paul Diller. 
Robert, though, is less heroic than it seems, as Lee Majors hams him up to the point where it's just a, he's a little bit of a James Bond wannabe, like seducing Gabrielle with the most cringe-inducing chatter lines, and spending the rest of the film clashing with both Kate and Paul. He does execute a cunning plan of his own, where in the film's climax, it's revealed that Gabrielle was a plant of his the entire time, as a way of getting the jewels for himself. It's interesting then that the female characters, including Anne, who also seems to be in on the plan by the end, are at the whim of the men in the movie, used as tools in order to gain riches. The only exception by the end of it is Kate, who's broken free from Paul's control and at ease with her plan of having half the jewels herself, whilst also giving Robert his fair share. I assume she probably felt guilty about her earlier betrayal of him by securing the jewels for both herself and Paul, only to find out that Paul was playing her. So by the film's conclusion, both Robert and Kate are happy, and it's a satisfactory ending for us too. The rivalry between Kate and Gabrielle too is suitably cheesy and fun to watch, but maybe I'm biased though, as I've always enjoyed watching on-screen female confrontation. Since watching Total Recall as a kid and rewinding the catfight between Sharon Stone and Rachel Tocotin, Women just do trash-talking way better than guys, and I genuinely did laugh out loud when Gabrielle asks a rain-soaked Kate, where have you two been, to get the retort, in the shower. Referring to the fact that Robert was hiding in the shower before when Kate was visiting him. Ollie's character too, played by the very recognisable Roy Brocksmith, is memorable for his hyperbolic campness, although I did get confused at first when he mentioned a honeymoon, so I got the impression at first that he was married to Gabrielle, and it really didn't gel well with me, until it became clear that he's actually a photographer and a homosexual one at that. He ends up being fish food, unfortunately, and quite a protracted death where you see some sort of offal being torn off him underwater. I don't know if it's meant to be fat, you know, because of Ollie's portliness, or it's just supposed to be random chunks of flesh, but it does humorously look like blubber of a sea animal. The piranhas themselves are a blend of actual stock footage of real piranha fish, and there's some mechanical models which are being puppeteered up on wires on cue. But they're not bad, to be honest. I mean, they're not as effective as Joe Dante's gnawing horrors, but they're also nowhere near the level of James Cameron's Piranha 2 either, where they just look like mackerel more than anything else. Whilst it's not a perfect heist thriller, or a flawless killer fish movie, it does blend enough elements of both together to be quite a pacey, entertaining B-movie feast, that if anything, it just dares to be a little different in a whole sea of Jaws clones. So just ignore the title, and I'm sure you'd be perfectly fine with this one, trust me. Lee Majors, who played Robert Lasky, was quite a well-known face for his appearance in The Six Million Dollar Man, and The Bionic Woman, of course. In more recent years, he's got a few surprise roles in various things, like the CSI uh, program, uh, the reboot of Dallas, and he was even in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Karen Black, who played Kate, was actually an Oscar nominee for her role in 1970's Five Easy Pieces, and she was also in Burnt Offerings, Trilogy of Terror, and she had a cameo in the Section 3 nasty movie, The Last Horror Film. She was also in Cut and Run, which we've covered before, and most recently she was in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses and Vacation Land. It was actually hard for me, though, to not think that it was actually Evangeline Lilly in this film, as Black looks incredibly similar to her, and even shares the character name Kate from the TV show Lost. Gabrielle was played by actress Margot Hemingway, actually the granddaughter of the writer Ernest Hemingway, who played the protagonist Chris in the Rape and Revenge movie Lipstick from 1976. 
This film actually brought her into the limelight and her path seemed to be illuminated with success, but after two failed marriages and the development of a drinking problem, her career unfortunately took a turn for the worst and she passed away from an alcoholic overdose when she was just 41 in 1996. It's rather unfair, really, that she garnered a Worst Supporting Actress Award in the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards for her role in Killer Fish. I mean, she was certainly not specifically bad. She did quite a competent job, just like the others. So I do feel that that one is a little bit unfair. Marisa Berenson, who played Anne, had previously been in Death in Venice, whilst James Franciscus is recognisable from our Argento episode a couple of weeks back. He, of course, played the charming Paul in Killer Fish, the very one responsible for the piranha. Roy Brocksmith, who played the rotund, portly Ollie, is also very recognisable as a character actor in various films like Scrooged, Tango and Cash, he was the Doctor in Total Recall, the Mortician in Arachnophobia, and he was even in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Frank Pesci, who actually has a name that means fish, who played Warren, has had a some bit roles in all sorts of things and he can be seen in the background of various films like Godfather Part 2 Maniac, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, Maniac Cop 1 to 3 and he was even in Expendables 3 Anthony Steffen who played Max he'd also been in a few things himself like a whole three course round of spaghetti westerns and Jally like The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave and Crimes of the Black Cat and Evil Eye Now, Antonio Margariti was the director on this film, often dubbed with his pseudonym, Anthony M. Dawson. Margariti was quite a prolific Italian director who ventured into almost every genre, from spaghetti westerns, spy thrillers, spaghetti war films, and even splatter. He's most known in video nasty circles for his film Cannibal Apocalypse, which was one of the infamous band examples, as well as his work on Paul Morrissey's Flesh for Frankenstein, where he pretty much did the second unit work. He also contributed a Section 3 title, The Last Hunter, which starred David Warbeck, so he's pretty much memorialised in these video nasty circles forever. Among cult bulls in general, though, he was known as a very warm and very fun person who gave filmmaking his all before passing away in 2002 at the age of 72. His influences still felt today, though, such as Eli Roth using his name as an alias in Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. The film was produced by Turi Vasile, who worked on Mario Barber's 1977 film Shock, but other than this guy, the other producers actually didn't really do much else of note. Even for the writer Michael Rogers, Killer Fish was his only sole credit. The music, however, was done by someone we've mentioned not too long ago on our Alien Terror episode, Guido and Maurizio De Angelis, or Oliver Onions as they're sometimes known. They managed to wrangle a damn good old tune or two on this picture, keeping it really nice and jolly. I mean, the, the atmosphere of the whole movie is that it's actually just quite light, quite entertaining, but just really quite cheerful for the subject matter anyway. The cinematographer too is a familiar face, Alberto Spagnoli, who we've mentioned before when we covered the cannibal movie Cut and Run. Editor Roberto Stabini had also worked on the aforementioned Shock by Mario Bava, as well as the later Blast Fighter and Devilfish. He also worked as an assistant editor on Savage Man Savage Beast and a sound editor on Hands of Steel, Lamberto Bava's Delirium, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and The House of Lost Souls. The film was released theatrically in both the US and the UK in 1979, where, notably in the UK, it received a few seconds of cuts to the scene of Ollie's death, reducing the intensity of it to attain a slightly lower rating. 
It did have a VHS release subsequently in the UK from Precision Video, where it was released uncut in November of 1981, putting it in the headlights of the video nasty vehicle rampaging about the video shops. Precision were one of those distributors that actually didn't release any video nasties that were named, so it is unlikely that this film would actually have drawn attention. The fact that it wasn't the BBFC cinema version, though, it may have irked some, as some of the nasties had, of course, also been banned for the same reason. But the film is not particularly disturbing when it comes to the violence, so I doubt anyone would have complained about it. It's possible, but I very much doubt it. It was passed uncut in the 90s for a televised showing on Channel 5, but since this, the film has actually failed to materialise in a home video format since the VHS era, so it's desperately in need of a release. There are, of course, releases on DVD and Blu-ray from various territories, like the US and Europe, for the discerning collector. So, that was Killer Fish, everybody, our first film this week, but let's get our teeth into another earthbound animal going nuts in Bruno Mattai's Rats Night of Terror. After the Earth is devastated by nuclear bombs, society splits into two factions. Those who live underground in shelters, and those who live primitively above ground in the remains of the human world. One such group, consisting of Deus, Duke, Video, Chocolate, Diana, Noah, Myrna, Lilith, Lucifer, Taurus, and their leader Kirk, scour the wastelands one day to come across a seemingly abandoned city street with buildings undamaged by the bombs. 
Deciding to rest a while, Kirk leads the group inside, whilst Video notices an abundance of rats in the area. The group head into another room, and Noah and Taurus discover that there are crates of perfectly intact food, causing the group to excitedly start feasting. When Myrna discovers the bed that she's resting on has a devoured corpse on it, they explore the rest of the building, only to discover even more corpses and rats. Whilst Video and his group find some machinery and computers, Noah and Lilith find an underground lab where fresh plant life is being grown and a water purifier dispenses fresh water using recycled rainwater. Deciding to stay for the long run, the group incinerate the bodies that they found and settle in for the night. As everyone is relaxing, Lucifer and Lilith screw in their sleeping bag, only to find that they can't get out easily as the zipper jams. Taurus gets them out, and the pair relocate outside to continue their shenanigans, whilst in the basement, Noah remains awake to tend to the flora. Lucifer gets in a tizzy with Lilith when she won't put out twice in a row, and goes off to drink some of the ancient alcohol left in the bar. Noah notices rats entering the water purifier and plopping into the water. Attempting to get them out, he's then attacked by a swarm of the rodents, while another swarm envelop Lucifer as he drunkenly falls into a sewer grate. Back inside, a stray rat burrows into Lilith's sleeping bag, but she's unable to escape as the zipper jams again. Her screams awaken the rest of the group, and they come across her corpse, just as a rat emerges from her mouth. As the group consider how stupid the idea is that the rats are responsible, Noah enters completely covered in the beasts. Kirk sets him on fire to get rid of them and he perishes, causing the group to wonder about what happened to Lucifer. They eventually come across his corpse in the sewer, at which point Taurus notices that the group's vehicles have been disabled by the rats chewing through the tyres. Chiding him for failing as a leader, Duke tries to start a coup against Kirk and take over the group. But when it fails, Kirk suggests looting supplies to barricade themselves away from the rats, and the group set to work nailing the doors. Just as it appears the rats have arrived, the group realise they've forgotten a window, and Diana wanders past it only to be attacked by a small cluster of rats. She collapses from her injuries and is confined to bed, when the group realise that they've forgotten to bring water. Kirk, Deus, Video and Taurus descend into the basement to get fresh water, only to discover that the tank now has rats in it, now polluted. Finding that they're surrounded and have to ascend rat-covered stairs, Kirk tries to abate them with a flaming torch, but on the way back up, Taurus is bitten and then surrounded by the creatures, forcing the others to abandon him. As the rats converge on them, Duke refuses to let them in due to wanting leadership, but Chocolate gains control of the situation and forces Duke to open the door to the group, narrowly avoiding the rats. Resigning to wait until dawn, they suddenly hear Taurus screaming and then resolve to save him. Everyone except Diana leaves the room to look for Taurus, half suspecting that the rats may be using him as a trap to lure them out, made more suspicious by the fact that the rats are ignoring Video as he walks through them. Chocolate, Deus, Myrna and Duke also walk through them without incident, but when it comes to Kirk, the rats suddenly become aggressive again. Duke convinces Myrna to abandon the group and escape alone, whilst the rest of the group come across Taurus leaning on the bar but it's revealed that it's simply a corpse, which expands quickly and bursts open, completely filled with rats. The group hear Duke starting one of the vehicles outside and attempt to stop him, only for him to threaten to detonate both him and Myrna with a grenade. But suddenly spotting loads of rats in the back, Duke tosses the grenade at them and promptly blows both himself and Myrna up. Disturbed by events so far, Diana stumbles upon the scene and then sneaks away and commits suicide with a glass shard, unable to continue any further. 
The remaining survivors, Kirk, Chocolate, Video, and Deus, finally come across her dead body, only for rats to pour in through a fireplace. The group flee to the computer room from earlier, only to discover Lilith's corpse to be inexplicably inside. Putting it outside, Chocolate then finds a recording device which describes the scientists who were there have also having trouble with the rats, but also that there are people still living under the surface. Suddenly, the door to the room is being shaken violently, only for Lilith's corpse to burst through completely swarmed in rats. As people in hazmat suits emerge from the sewers outside and spray a gas through the streets, both Deus and Kirk are overrun by the rats who eat them alive. As Chocolate and Video consider suicide, they suddenly become aware of the gas flooding into the building. Video excitedly believes it's the people from underground, and the pair emerge, only to faint with the gas being so thick. Awakening outside, Chocolate and Video find themselves surrounded by the men in hazmat suits, and they thank them for saving their lives, who confirm silently that they are indeed the people from underground. One of them removes his mask, revealing a humanoid rat creature, causing Chocolate to scream as the film ends. Hey, food! Wow, man! How do you know? Look at this! This is sugar! It's sugar! <laughs> Come on, everybody, over here! Let's start digging! Hey, I'm sorry! Oh, here. I want some of that. Come on! Come on! Hey, this is flour. That's flour. It's flour. Here, there's some flour in your Any fans out there of Bruno Mattai will understand what I mean when I say his movies are goddamn awful, but they're hypnotically and bizarrely entertaining. After the palaver of Shocking Dark a few weeks ago, Rat's Night of Terror is more of the same when it comes to inept filmmaking, with an automatic cheese vat in the background. Thankfully, in this rodent-filled example, there's considerably less copying wholesale, and more tasteful homage instead. I mean, it's entirely debatable, though, whether this makes Rats the more successful of the two, but we'll have a good try. The film opens with an explanatory reel of how the Earth became plagued with the blight that it has, all the while Sharpie marks pepper the words in the background. Just this opening sequence shows just what kind of film you're getting. No sooner is the narration over than we see lizards, who have somehow survived the reigning flames of nuclear war. We then get a glimpse of our intrepid heroes arriving at the old set of Once Upon a Time in America. No, really, the set was actually the leftovers of that film. They're dressed as well like an 80s convention of Mad Max fans, most of them clad in leathers and neck scarves, but there's also the occasional studded headband, army camo bodysuit, dodgy mustard yellow tunics, and in Lilith's case, a top hat Dracula cape combination with a skin-tight leather corset. I mean, it's already ridiculous and we haven't even had any character dialogue yet. Our heroes then find some crates of food, only to engorge themselves on it in the most ridiculous fashion, whilst simultaneously spilling it, dumping it in each other's hair, and splashing brine on oneself. 
It soon becomes apparent, though, that the film's dialogue is almost stupefyingly bad in almost every situation. But in this scene, we're treated to some awful human speech, like chocolate, and yes, she is black, and yes, it's supremely racially insensitive, hopping around like a drunken dervish, and chanting, Look, I'm a white! I'm whiter than all of you! La 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 la! I'm a white! I'm a white! And even Myrna, whilst spilling precious sugar, yells, I think we found paradise! The dialogue in the film really doesn't improve. You get all sorts of gobsmackingly dire lines, like, Stupid machine needs a kick in the balls. Or, If you must copulate, why don't you go outside and do it? Computers and corpses are a bad mixture. I'm going to warm their whiskers. I order you to open it in the name of humanity. This just seems to be indicative of Claudio Fregasso's style of writing, though. Anyone who's seen Troll 2 will notice the similarities between the inane, almost unspeakable sentences that the characters have to say. The dialogue does render the already flat, lifeless characters as just soundboards for the ridiculous script. Although, really, if even if the script were better, it probably wouldn't redeem these characters. Kirk is quite possibly the worst leader in the world, especially of this ragtag group of scavengers that there ever was. He openly wastes an entire sack of flour for a joke. He sets Noah on fire with his flamethrower and kills him, even though just shooing the rats off him with his hands would have saved him. To make matters worse, he then lashes out and strikes Taurus after the rats chew through their vehicle tyres, when it's absolutely Kirk's problem. He declares that Taurus is dead and that no one can save him now, and vows to stay barricaded in until dawn, only to just renege instantly when he hears moaning outside. I mean, there's a whole catalogue of things wrong with him, and even though he clearly needs putting in his place, the would-be leader Duke is also a greasy bag of shite. He causes trouble for no reason, slightly making quips all the time, and he's just your stereotypical asshole that you can't wait to be gnawed on by flesh-eating rats. Only he's so stupid he ends up blowing himself up with a grenade, which is somehow not as satisfying. There's Deus, an idiot with a triangle on his head who meditates, and he has that distant stare that makes everything he says seem poignant, when actually it's all just rubbish and he ends up as rat chow anyway. Lucifer is another stereotypical toxic masculine caricature who gets annoyed with Lilith for not wanting to fuck straight away after doing it once already. I mean, he gets drunk and falls to his death in a sewer grate. I mean, like his namesake, it's probably the only slightly intelligent nod in the whole film. On another biblical note, Noah is attacked by rats when he checks the water purifier. A reference to the Ark, maybe? Lilith herself is almost entirely perfunctory, simply there to receive a rat in the foof and become a rat vehicle, apparently, later on. Video, despite surviving to the end, only has a supposed love of video games to distinguish him from the rest, while Taurus is actually about as generic as you can get, apart from spouting confidence is the virtue of the strong, and ending up as a vector for more rats later. Diana is portrayed as somewhat of a weakling, means she's incapacitated by superficial bites to the face, and then she commits suicide as a result. Myrna, though, is rather memorable for all the wrong reasons. She literally screams her way through the whole production, screaming at noises, gasping at any movements, and throwing nervous tantrums when she falls downstairs. In another typically Italian-style scene, she spots a red-kneed tarantula, something else which has somehow survived the nuclear war, and upon spotting it, proceeds to have a screaming match. Kirk, however, can't stand it any longer, and promptly slaps her in the face. 
I laughed. I'm not ashamed. I know you shouldn't laugh at this kind of misogynistic aspect of cinema where women are mistreated, but this film is so unserious that this sort of scene, it just inspires laughter at how badly it's done. Myrna just shrieks constantly, and it's it's rather merciful that she perishes in the same explosion that kills Duke. I mean, let's face it, she was dumb enough to believe that he was actually going to save her, so she probably deserved it. Chocolate is the only distinctive character, really, and not just because of her offensive name. Simply because Gioretta Gioretta plays her with the same tongue-in-cheek silliness that she displayed in Shocking Dark. And the fact that actually Chocolate does stand up for people. I mean, she takes care of Diana, she tries to stop Duke and Kirk fighting, and she threatens to shoot Duke for not opening the door to Kirk. Unfortunately, she does end up in the screaming role after Myrna's demise, and it's hard to ignore the fact that she wants to be shot in the head by suicide using a spike rather than a gun. Without the characters, we have instead the rats to focus on. And unlike some of the video nasties like Gestapo's Last Orgy or Beast in Heat, real rats are actually used in this film, thankfully. Or not so thankfully, which we'll find out in a bit. It appears that the rats used in this film are Norwegian albino rats, with white fur and pinkish eyes, normally cultivated for use as pets due to their docile nature and relative lack of transferable diseases. For the film, however, they're in some sort of makeup or grease paint to make them look like they're more dirty-looking, infectious relatives. But it is noticeable in certain scenes, though, where the paint has not covered the entire body properly, or that the lighting is actually highlighting their naturally reddish eyes. Regardless, the rats are actually not particularly threatening at all. They're mainly milling around in the background and are doing their own thing. When the rat attack sequences are happening, it's usually a stagehand or someone just tipping a bucket of them onto an actor off-screen which is just plain ineffective, really. You just have an unrealistic scrabbling by the actors as they vigorously try to brush off rats that aren't even clinging to them. This is particularly evident during Diana's attack, where they pretty much drop to the floor almost straight away, and most of the time is spent on the various idiots near her trying to brush imaginary rodents off of her. It's not even particularly needed, as there's several moments where they're clearly using fake rats with visible teeth to do some of the attack shots, which begs the question of why this wasn't the route they just went down, in order to wring some actual gore out of the film. Having said that, perhaps practical effects were not really an option of this film, as the conveyor belt rats show. Yes, they actually use solid models of rats arranged on a conveyor belt and try to convince us that these are rats rushing upstairs. It's laughably bad, so much so that even for Matai, this shouldn't have even been considered. In fact, the rats themselves don't get to do much on-screen munching. Most of the gore in the film comes from aftermaths where the payoff gets increasingly bizarre. For example, Taurus is found standing up with a bloodied face. Fine enough, let's just ignore the fact that somehow the rats have put him there. But after it plonks down on the floor, his body expands and then explodes, chugging out rats from inside almost like a rodent pimple. But why? Why do the rats act like this? In an even more bizarre tactic later, the rats have apparently moved Lilith's body from one place to another, and then use it somehow to batter down a door. I mean, they're not Remy from Ratatouille, but then they somehow accomplish ludicrous feats like this. It's all so strange. Not helped by the fact that the characters are so hysterical at times that they attribute anything that goes wrong to the rats plotting against them, like chewing tyres or making Taurus scream to lure them out, becoming docile to trick them or using corpses to knock down doors. It's all just so silly that there's no real horror in the whole thing. Just a strange flavoured cheese. Especially with a twist ending that says the people underground have mutated into bipedal rats themselves. 
I would be half tempted to say that the film actually isn't even about flesh-eating rats at all. There's enough evidence in the film to suggest that the whole thing is actually the collective delusions of our characters. The rats are shown to be around, but there's nothing untoward going on until the group greedily scoff down a bunch of food, which, having been sat around for ages, surely it would be contaminated with all sorts of nasty stuff and radiation... And then it's notable that after that they start finding bodies, of course, and the hysteria builds up from there. Lilith gets stuck in her sleeping bag. She could have easily have died from panic and shock of being stuck in there with a rat. Lucifer drinks heavily, more contaminated produce, and then just drunkenly falls into a sewer grate. That alone could easily kill someone. You know, the rats might have just eaten him afterwards. Noah again panics after seeing rats in the water, but only has minor injuries until Kirk turns him into a human barbecue, which obviously would kill someone. The bizarre nature of Kirk and the others ascribing motives to rather disinterested-looking rats just seems indicative that they've all been intoxicated with radiation or drugs of some kind. Myrna is clearly having a bad trip of some kind, throwing tantrums and screaming at everything. Deus gets all deep about everything as though he's on acid. Diana, after a few rats fall on her, has scratches all over her face. A little bit like when junkies scratch at their skin when they imagine bugs under it. The fact that she ends up committing suicide also seems to harken back to the tragedies when drug users become overwhelmed with the effects and take drastic action to stop it. Duke is absolutely paranoid, enough to challenge Kirk to a duel and cause trouble, and even ends up rather stupidly blowing himself a murder up after freaking out about more rats. The more nonsensical aspects of the film, like the rats apparently using both Taurus and Lilith as vehicles to attack the others or batter down doors, just seems like the ramblings of demented drunkards. They could literally be imagining almost everything, and it culminates in their rescuers appearing as rats themselves, as they're so paranoid and suspicious of the things all night. That's just my take on it, though. The ridiculous sequences of events mixed with the rather ordinary rats in the background just make that interpretation, to me, to have a lot more grounding. One thing, though, that is more than mere interpretation, though, is the film's treatment of its rodent co-stars. Rather bizarrely for the BBFC, there's animal cruelty galore in this film, which kind of goes against their usually strict and thorough combing of these sorts of films. The rats are clearly thrown about, they're hit with glasses, grabbed quite roughly shot at, stepped on, kicked, and in some instances they're even incinerated on camera. Pretty disgusting treatment really for what are essentially harmless animals being employed for the film's requirements. After finishing, I did wonder if the BBFC's Cinematographic Animals Act covered rats under the policy, and discovered that it actually does cover most vertebrates, both domesticated and wild. Also, the video nasty Cannibal Apocalypse did have a brief two-second cut to remove the sight of a rat being set on fire by a flamethrower, so I do find it really bizarre that the film has actually just been left uncut to this degree. Kurt was played by Ottavanio Delacqua, whom we've encountered before when we covered Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, and Goretta Goretta, who played Chocolate, is also familiar from when we covered Shocking Dark two weeks ago. Other familiar faces are Massimo Varni, who played Taurus. He was in the aforementioned Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, along with Delacqua. And Fausto Lombardi, who played Deus, he's been in Terror Express and Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 before on Nasty Pasty. Video was played by Gianni Franco, who was rather low-key as actors go, although he did appear uncredited in the video Nasty The Beast in Heat, The Atlantis Interceptors, Lamberto Balva's Delirium, Phantom of Death, and The Wax Mask. 
Jean-Christophe Bretignier, who played Lucifer, cropped up again in Fulci's Sweet House of Horrors, whilst Cindy Ledbetter, who played Diana, had a small but recognisable filmography, having been in Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, which we've featured once before. She was in Star Crash, The Video Nasty Absurd, and indeed this film. But all the other actors had rather limited filmographies. Matai's film is pretty much their only claim to fame. Having covered Shocking Dark not so long ago, the directors and writers Bruno Matai and Claudio Fragasso are probably still fresh in the mind. They both had a hand in the direction and the script of this one, assisted by writer Hervé Pacini, who was on work, also worked on Devilfish. It was produced by Jacques Letienne, who was on the writer on The Scorpion with Two Tails, and the cinematography was done by Franco Deli Colli, whom we've mentioned quite a while ago when we discussed when we covered Umberto Lenzi's Ghost House and Barva's Macabre. He was assisted on this by Henry Froges, who worked on Women's Prison Massacre and Revenge of the Living Dead Girls. The ultra-synth-heavy soundtrack was done by Luigi Cacciarelli, who worked on Caged Women and Women's Prison Massacre. Editor Gilbert Cicchioni, as far as I can see, worked mostly in pornography, with only a few exceptions like Night of the Haunted and Buried Alive. Makeup guy Giuseppe Ferranti, we've mentioned before on Cat and Nine Tales, and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He was quite a prolific makeup effects person, working on five of the video nasties in total, like Hell Prison, Zombie Creeping Flesh, Nightmare City, Cannibal Ferox, and Absurd. Maurizio Trani also helped out with the more technical special effects. He also worked on Witchcraft, which we covered way back when. He'd actually be more well-known, though, for his makeup work on stuff like Don't T Torture a Duckling, Almost Human, Emmanuel in America, Zombie Flesh Eaters, Zombie Holocaust, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, Dawn of the Mummy, Piranha 2, The Spawning, New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, Bronx Warriors, 2019, After the Fall of New York, Atlantis Interceptors, Wild Beasts, Cut and Run, and the infamous Troll 2. So, quite a large career, really. The film was so low-key, though, that it wasn't even released theatrically in its home territory. It was instead released to VHS across Europe and America under various titles, like Blood Kill, Year 225 After the Holocaust, and Mutants of the Second Humanity. It had a release in the UK in 1985 from Medusa Video, just after the Video Recordings Act was passed in the previous year, so it did get a BBFC certificate, making it actually legitimate. Medusa were the company, however, in trouble for releasing Joe D'Amato's Absurd, so perhaps the police glanced over it, but it probably really wouldn't have been on their radar. It's been available in the UK from Vipco since the early 2000s, but it's also available across the world in various forms, so it's really not hard to get hold of for Matai completists. So, 
That was Rats Night of Terror, or Ratty Notti del Terrore, and it's the second of our films today. It does mean that that's it from me for now, but I'll be back next week as ever. Next week, we're returning to a recurring genre that we've had twice on the show already, Nazi exploitation. So unlike our other episodes, which focused on the prototypes and the early examples of the genre, next week we'll focus on two rather typical entries in the genre. They're Deported Women of the SS Special Section and Fraulein Devil, which is sometimes known as Elsa Fraulein SS. Until that time, I'll be loving you and leaving you, as we've got our own problems in the UK this week. Not only is our supreme Brexit idea in more shit than it was born in, but it's been compounded by a giant Watsit who's flown in from America today to parade his filth on our lives. Yeah, I try not to be too political, but it's so hard these days when it's such a shambles. Anyhow... Everyone look after yourselves, get in touch about any trashy films you've bought or come across, or even the ones that we're covering on the show, and I'll speak to you next week. Farewell, everybody. (laughs) 